That feeling when you have nine people for the draft. Spock! Draft. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Welcome you to this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I am Andy, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, Undefeated Streak Maddox? Sure, you know, everybody gets lucky sometimes. Sometimes you get lucky three times in a row. I thought it was, so it's been three separate cube drafts. So we did, I played a lot of Magic this week. We did a a Chaos draft on Sunday where I 3-0'd, and then we played some games on stream where... Just by the skin of my teeth, I managed to beat you there at the end. Uh, oh, I mean, you beat me pretty our... handily. Let's be clear. Yeah, yeah. It felt it felt mixed. Uh, <laughs> and then we did another draft, our regular Tuesday night draft. And technically, I drew one of the matches. So I think undefeated is a fair term. Yeah, you there. didn't get defeated. Perfect. Yeah, it is. It is fun to win in Magic: The Gathering sometimes, even though I don't do it all that often. I think you do it pretty often. It's hard to see that sometimes. It is hard to see that. It is very true. It's much easier to remember your losses it's than true. your wins. It's true. And that game that you beat me, you know, I think you beat me very handily. It just took an hour. It took a long time. And <laughs> but... also, there were a lot of mistakes along the way that made it feel worse, and definitely like a lack of understanding of the, the options that I had in my own deck presented some challenges. So there's still a lot of obvious room for improvement, which made it feel not like a clean, easy win didn't feel like a controlled situation. Now, I definitely don't ever play matches of magic where I get to the end and think I didn't make any mistakes. That never happens. I made really obvious mistakes. Yeah, I Very did too. I also made a really bad punt. I wonder and we those are on, are those on YouTube? They are now. Yes. Great. As of, so as of go see 2 hours ago, yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, if you want to see my huge punt where I didn't think literally one turn ahead and was just like, "Oh, I get to swing with a 3-4 flying vigilance lifelink. That's great." Turns out it's not great. I shouldn't have done that thing. It was bad. Anthony, this is a special episode of the show. We are not alone. We are joined by a member of our local playgroup who is here to talk about his set cube, the cube, in fact, we drafted on stream this past Monday and the games of which you can find on YouTube. We are joined by Aaron Podmarter. <laughs> I actually don't know your last name, but it's fine. We're not going to talk to you on the show, but you're the Podmarter is who you are. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You're the most generous member of our playgroup, I would say. And if we're you know down at the LGS and there's nine people for a draft, you are the first person to volunteer to sit out. So much so that I've started to bully you and say, Aaron, you can't always volunteer because you have to make one of these other scrubs that's uh, not going to volunteer sit out every once in a while. Do you like playing cube, I guess is the question. <laughs> well, I don't know if you noticed, but I... I did take your advice to heart, and this past Tuesday, I really put my foot down you for did. Bun Magic true. Cube. You did. It was I was so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> so proud that I bullied you into behaving how I wanted you, you know, to I'm behave. Just, I'm just happy to play. So, you know, when, when we're not doing the draft, I usually just do a battle box or something with another person who's there. So, however it happens. Well, the playgroup is lucky to have you because it makes things uh, run that much smoother. And it's also like to have one person that always sits out, you can make the argument more strongly that someone else should do it, right? Like, 
if, if we aren't nine and you haven't played for a week or something, I can be like, Aaron sat out last week and he did it graciously. So somebody else would graciously sit out, you know? Mm-hmm. It just, just makes me feel like we're, we're at the airport and it's like, somebody better check their bags at the gate because somebody's <laughs> going to have to do it. <laughs> we just slowly start increasing that we'll give you 500 miles, 1,000 miles. We'll give you 2,000 cube miles if you oh, sit out this they don't give you draft. They don't do, do that anymore. I don't know when the last time you've flown, but uh, none of that stuff. I feel like they still do that eventually. That's not for bags, though. It's when they've literally oversold sure, the flight. Sure, sure, yeah, right. That's a different situation. Yeah. Uh, I almost took one of those once. It was uh, I was flying back from Chicago or something, and it was like, we're offering $200 for someone to skip the flight. And now $400. And now $500. And I was like, I could take $500 I could take, I mean, and a hotel stay overnight to fly back tomorrow morning. This system just feels... This, we're going way off topic, but that system feels so easy to abuse. You just got to look around make eye contact with everybody else in the terminal. It's just like, we are not going to budge. We are going <laughs> to... It's like the... Uh, How prison... high will they go? It's some sort of weird prisoner's dilemma yeah. almost. It's like mm-hmm. you have to all agree in game theory-wise, you're just going to not budge until... Somebody budges, until, I guess. Until the, air, until the airport is punished for their greedy capitalism. Let's just dive right in and talk about Aaron's Cube. Uh, we're talking about set cubes on this episode, something that we have not talked about before in the show. We get a lot of requests to talk about set cubes. Transparently, Anthony and I have not been willing to because we have not made a set cube before, and we're not on this show to start blowing a bunch of smoke about things we don't know about. So uh, we're really lucky to be joined by Aaron, who just finished a couple weeks ago getting your set cube built in paper, would you say? Yeah, I finished it maybe three weeks ago, and then we've had two drafts of it since then. Should I give a little introduction to the cube itself or start with why I picked a set cube more generally, what that is. Let's just describe what a set cube is for people that don't know. And I think it's actually quite a range of things people call set cubes. Broadly speaking, it's a cube that is directly inspired by a specific limited set. So you really liked playing, in your case, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. And the idea is let's just build a cube that plays more or less like Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I think, you know, we, we have talked about this a little bit, but I set cubes strike me as maybe one of the best ways to get started with cube where if you've never designed Absolutely. a cube and you're looking for an entry point that's not an idea that's original to me there's a lot of you know set cube well what set cube content exists alludes to this um but i think you know designing a cube can feel pretty overwhelming like i know when i was putting together my my first cube which is kind of i call my main cube i was wondering you know just where to start and so i think having that some restrictions can mitigate that decision paralysis and i i do love that classic mark rosewater quote restrictions breed creativity and i think that shows through when designing a set cube yeah i mean i think it's so much easier to make changes and make decisions about a cube once you already have some play experience and you're, you're actually doing the cube thing rather than just thinking very abstractly so even if your goal isn't to necessarily replicate a particular set exactly i think it's just such a great way to say like let's let's take the let's leverage this resource of the fact that wizards has designed this p- collection of cards to play well together use that as sort of the nucleation site for a cube and build from there and i think that, that that's more or less what you've done which is really cool to see and and see already it start to evolve and, and change a little bit from that baseline set but I think it is important just to talk about sort of the spectrum of what set cubes are, because I think it really is a spectrum. On one extreme, there are just the really rigorous, we're going to design a cube that is going to try and emulate a particular draft format as well as possible. So the idea is you're going to get a bunch of redundant copies of all the commons, slightly fewer number of the uncommons, a couple rares and mythics, or you know maybe one copy of each rare or mythic. And then if you want to go really far, even collate every single pack and like shuffle up all the commons and uncommons and rares separately and then build packs to really try and 
replicate that experience exactly. Which I think if you love a, a format, that works great because it, you really can get pretty close and faithful to that experience. But you can also do a lot of things that are less extreme than that. Don't necessarily need to maintain that ratio exactly of the commons and uncommons if there are particular rares you don't enjoy playing with or you know if you don't actually want to collate packs you can just take a bunch of cards from the set maybe you know still have some disparity between the number of commons and uncommons but still just shuffle it up and sure you'll have some packs that have a couple extra rares which isn't exactly how a normal draft works but it's still going to be a fun experience sometimes it does maybe it's sometimes got a foil rare you can have foils we got it thanks for keeping us precise <laughs> but yeah so i think that there are there's anything that's possible within that range and we could even go to the sort of more out there uh, end where it's just like it's kind of just loosely inspired by a set or a plane or something like that and really make it whatever you want the spectrum i had in my head was actually a little different i i think yours makes a lot of sense where it's like how closely you're hewing to the actual experience of drafting that set. But another way to think about it is just how much work you put into it. And I'm interested to hear Aaron's perspective, because I know that this basically just started as like, you did a single draft and you were like, that was fun. And I think a great message to people out there that are listening is like, you can take those exact cards, Mm -hmm. put them all in the same sleeves, add some basic lands, and you got a cube, baby. That's a cube. Yeah, so you're exactly right. We did a draft of a box of Neon Dynasty, and I was like, this is great. Other people were like, this is great. And... I at first that was exactly my idea. I was just like, I'm going to just sleeve up these cards, keep them in the box, and we'll just pull it out anytime we want to do a retail draft. And then of course I went down the rabbit hole of research and decided to make some changes. When I was putting it together, I think the spectrum that I was imagining aligned more with Anthony's, which was once I was like, okay, I'm gonna start making some changes, how closely do I want to stick to replicating that retail draft versus just the essence of what I liked about it? When I was doing some research on how to put the cube together, some common guidelines I found for if you wanted to adhere more to the precise replication end of the spectrum where the kind of three to one ratio of three commons, two uncommons, one rare mythic. I was reading that the retail limited ratio is actually a six, three, one. And that adds up to a lot of cards. So as I was, yeah. yeah, And so even with, I decided to, you know, take out some cards altogether. So I wasn't going to have some copies, but even still I was adding up and I was like, this is a lot. So basically I tried to do my research about what were the rule, kind of the, the recommended rules for creating a set cube that precisely mimicked the, or closely resembled the retail draft and then broke some of those restrictions, which I'm happy to get into as well. Yeah, so let's just hear more about your story with this cube, because I think starting from a regular just booster draft uh, is like the easiest way I could think of for someone to build a cube, right? It already even comes in a box. It's like ready to go. It's even easier than like going and ordering some starter cube online, which is like more work. And, you know, it just it's a set, you know, you like. And especially if you had like one draft where everyone had a good time, maybe no one opened a totally oppressive bomb. Now you don't have a totally oppressive bomb in your cube, right? You just, the cards that were opened are the ones that are going to get played. That's like the most easy way to have a cube. And we were always stressing on this show that I think if someone's interested in cube, the biggest challenge is just getting them over that hurdle of like having a cube at all, because it does feel very intimidating to design a cube, quote unquote, but people can just sleeve up the cards they have and then draft them. It's going to be fun. And then make changes as you go. Decide, I don't like this card. Actually, I found another card I like more. And boom, now you're cube designing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that particular feature you're mentioning does come up, even for people that are trying to replicate formats pretty closely. They'll say, well, you know, this rare is really just sort of designed for a particular constructed format and got planted in the set as a rare or doesn't really function here in the, the kind of limited environment. Hedron alignment. Want. Sure. So maybe <laughs> you would just choose to not include the hedron alignments uh, in your set cube uh, just to make it play even better. Like, obviously, when they are designing retail limited sets, they have a lot of other purposes for those packs in mind. You get to sort of say, like, well, this is the version that's tailored 
just for drafting and also just for the draft that my players are going to enjoy. Anyway, we asked you a question, Aaron, that we talked <laughs> for like two minutes. So just talk more about how this cube came to be and your, your journey with it. Yeah, definitely. So the first thing that I thought about were what were the Wizards of the Coast intended archetypes from the limited draft and which ones, it, when we actually drafted, which ones did I feel like worked and the players enjoyed and which ones really didn't. Uh, the obvious example for Neon Dynasty was the red-white attacking alone with Samurai's theme. Others are just kind of, were just kind of nebulous. Like we had the uh, moment where we pulled out the little draft guide card and we realized that white black was intended to be the balance theme. Right. Yeah. The having an artifact and an enchantment is the like black white archetype essentially in the right. dynasty. From there, I was thinking about, you know, do I want to limit this cube to just this set or the plane of Kamigawa? I think another part of the consideration is balancing the technical aspect of the draft with what kind of flavor do you want to evoke with the set cube as you alluded to andy i was trying to keep an out for just specific cards that were real bombs really unfun to play against um, or just real duds and unfun to play for the other reason mana fixing obviously in a retail limited set is usually at a much lower density than we're accustomed to at least in our own environment so that was another thing i was considering tweaking and then finally also the cards that are intended for other formats although you know we had we pointed out a couple of cards that uh, were maybe intended for a format like Commander, but then when you increase the fixing, for example, maybe they become a little bit more viable. So that wasn't something I was looking to eliminate necessarily, but just something I was trying to identify and then just keep an eye on based on how I tweaked the rest of those variables. A lot of the Commander cards end up being very powerful in one-on-one contexts. Like Shorakai, for example, was a card that was printed for the Commander set, and you can see why it makes sense for a Neon Dynasty Commander, but also one-on-one, it's just kind of a messed up magic card. So you know, looking at the accompanying commander product is another option for like broadening the card pool if you're designing a set specific cube i also want to emphasize that like i I think a lot of people probably are in it for flavor reasons so you know trying to combine neon dynasty with original kamigawa and we referenced you in this cube on the show before in saying that that's kind of a difficult challenge just because of how card development has changed so much in the intervening 17 years however long it's been since they printed original kamigawa But I was even thinking, like, if you wanted to, you could combine Neon Dynasty with, like, Kaladesh, right? That's also a set that has an Artifacts Matter theme. It has a Vehicles theme. It's got a lot of similar themes already that kind of combine and maybe complement each other. So you could just, you know, combine it with anything else you wanted to based on any of your own design directions. Yeah, so as of this moment, the cube includes cards from Neon Dynasty, original Kamigawa, and then some on-flavor cards uh, for example, some of the ninjas from Modern Horizons, I believe it was. So shout out again to the Multiverse Project. That was a great resource that I used when putting this list together. And my current goal with it is to offer just a kind of a powered up retail draft experience um, with games being relatively relatively fast and close, although I'm fine with the occasional victory due to a well-timed Hidetsugu second right or an assembled <laughs> Mech Titan, which I was on the end of in one of our drafts. So, you know, I'm hoping that players will be able to draft these synergistic decks. And this is kind of another reason why I was intrigued or interested in this project was that my main cube is sort of trending towards higher power level and reliant less on synergy. And I was, I like the idea of having an environment that's a little lower power level and a little more synergy dependent. It is non-singleton, so I do. I didn't adhere strictly to those ratios that I mentioned earlier, but I did include multiple copies of some of the signpost uncommons that signal the themes, as well as some of the kind of bread and butter commons and uncommons in the set. I think it makes a big difference, too. I mean, I think drafting this cube feels great, and part of it is that, yeah, if you're playing the blue-white deck, to really drive that vehicle's theme home, having multiple Prodigy's prototypes or whatever uh, makes a really big difference. 
the cube also breaks the singleton restriction for fixing and that was definitely that was probably the area that i changed the most from the baseline draft set where i i actually did do the math on that on the fixing density and i think it was like four percent of the base set and so i increased that even it sounds kind of high yeah i'm surprised by that it might have been it at least when i broke down by the card ratios when i did the kind of three of each common uncommon sure uh, yeah but right now in my cube the fixing is a little over 10 percent of the total cube it's a it's a 540 card cube 55 fixing lands and I actually got a lot of good feedback on that after our, our first couple drafts, which was that most of the players felt like they could get the fixing they wanted and made the, the decks feel pretty smooth. I think some of the kind of current issues and, you know, possible future directions I want to take it. One kind of consideration I'm keeping in mind for the future is the removal, both the removal density and quality. And I'm actually curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this because my first thought was, well, I want to keep some of these cool, powerful cards, some of the cool commander cards. And that would mean I probably want to increase both the quality and the density of removal. But then I was kind of wondering, well, will that just make the really fun, synergistic bread and butter commons and uncommons a little bit worse? Yeah, I mean, it's always a difficult tension between synergistic effects and removal because it, it kind of cuts both ways that it makes your removal matter a lot more when there are synergistic components such that removing one kind of has the effect of taking away multiple cards you have two cards that add up to more than the sum of their parts and you remove one you're kind of removing both so it's kind of like makes the removal fun win and makes like using your removal fun i think when there are really synergistic sort of packages of cards on the other hand it makes the synergy worse so it's like finding a balance where it's like do players just have a lot of agency and feel like they are in control and having fun about how they are either leveraging those synergistic cards or leveraging their removal against it it's funny i think that actually the density or quality are like totally separate questions when it comes to that issue. So for example, in the games we played on stream, Anthony, you and I, you had a couple of creatures in your deck like Goro Goro, whatever his epithet is, and Kami of Celebration, two creatures which have lots of value that is not at all related to them attacking and blocking. They just need to be in play and it works. And my only removal happened to be Intercessor's Arrest. And so I just kind of lost both those cards because I had no True, way yeah. to actually remove them. Not to get too specific, that does deal with uh, activated abilities, though, didn't it? Uh, yeah, that would deal with Goro Goro, I guess. Mm -hmm. Not the important part. <laughs> sure. So that's, that's kind of a quality question, right? And I think that those are the sorts of things like, you know, occasionally having a Goro Goro or a Kami of Celebration, something that has a really powerful bomby effect which i think it's i think it's fun to include those it also is much closer to retail limited to have some cards that are a lot more powerful than the other cards it makes for exciting draft picks and getting real excited when you open a pack so i think it makes sense to include those i think the power level of those is often going to be kind of related to like the quality of removal the question of quantity really affects how i play in the kind of deck i draft so for example in like retail sealed my attitude towards removal is like, I'm only going to remove something if I literally can't beat it, right? It is very rare in retail sealed that I feel like I'm going to remove something as a like tempo advantage. Like I normally wouldn't want to spend my, you know, murder on their two drop, but I think if I just kill their two drop, I can get them dead immediately. Usually you can't a deck that is fast enough, consistent enough that you're able to do that. And so the removal spells in your deck, basically in my mind are kind of like perfect counterbalances to whatever bombs my opponent have. It's like, I'm going to save these for like the targets that really matter. And I think you can have a draft environment that plays similarly, where you don't have a huge density of removal, but the quality is good. So when you need to use it, you can actually remove the thing. It's actually gone. It's not coming back. It's not like it's a, you know, upgraded bounce spell. And this is where we get into those interesting questions about like different card evaluations on removal. 
a card that's been semi-contentious we've talked about in the show recently is Soul Partition, which is a card I'm still pretty excited about for my own cube, but other players are like, this is awful, who would ever want to play this? And I think it comes down to whether your cube is more like Retail Sealed or more like my cube, which is extremely low curving, and most removal, I would say, is being used as a tempo advantage. It's like, I'm going to get you dead because I'm going to remove that thing, which is all you've done your mana so far. Well, I think it's interesting. There is kind of like another level of the metagame that develops from that, because if we're playing a match and I know that you have the removal that answers all my bombs and maybe I don't have removal that answers yours, suddenly that might put me in a position where I'm going to change my strategy game too, and I'm going to try and start using my removal in more of a tempo way because I know that I can't win the long game. Can you really know that though? Because I think at Retail Seal, it does often comes down to oh, like... You, you can when you get through literally your entire deck. Okay, we knew... We <laughs> <laughs> we knew after game three of uh, of our match because yeah. it went super long, and I... Spoiler alert for Anthony and my match that we played of Eren's Kamigawa Remastered Cube on the stream that is now also on YouTube. If you want to watch that match and you don't want to know the outcome, skip the next 15, 30 seconds of this podcast episode. I had a Cloudsteel Kieran in my deck, and my strategy, from the early turns of the game, it was clear that you were on target to win, Anthony. You were, like, pulling ahead on resources, pulling ahead in every single way, and I had this Cloudsteel Kieran in my hand, and I was like, my only plan here is just to play as much as I can, to keep up as much as possible, try and force you to use your removal to try and kill me, and then hopefully, by the time I was forced to play and reconfigure my Cloudsteel Kieran in the same turn, you would be out of removal. And... As it turned out, you were, you had one left in your deck, and it took you a few turns to find it, but then you eventually did win the game. Spoiler alert, I guess, for the games, if you're going to watch them online. spoiler alert after the spoiler. I'll, <laughs> Doesn't I'll, work. I'll edit in a spoiler before it. People Great. will love it. In that case, you did actually know, but rarely can you. I mean, sometimes you can tell, okay, my opponent's playing Grixis, right? Uh, or they're playing black-red. I expect them to have more removal than a green-blue deck or something. You can get, like, rough sense of things like that, but I think rarely do you know, like, oh, I have more bombs than you have removal, I will win the inevitability, like, flip sure. your deck over game. I mean, there's always a big degree of just intuition, which I think is what makes a lot of games of Magic fun. Anyway, all's a roundabout way of saying, I think there is a way to tune the removal so that you allow synergistic commons and uncommons to be playable, and also allow these, like, more bomby, like, mythic rares or rares to be playable, but not totally take over the environment, where it's just whoever had the luck of drafting more of those cards ends up winning. It's just a question of, I think getting the like quality and density right and i don't think it's just oh add more and that will fix it because once you have add a lot then yeah of course i'm going to remove your like two-piece synergy thing because i've got tons of removal so i might as well get rid of your like little synergy engine right and one thing i noticed when i did go back and look at the removal and try to categorize the kind of hard removal conditional removal spells i know i did notice that a lot of the kind of hard removal removes any target unconditionally spells were pretty expensive and a lot of them you couldn't be played at couldn't be played at instant speed twisted embrace is a good example that's the four mana black enchantment where it has to actually enchant a creature to Mm -hmm. destroy another creature and so if your creature gets killed or something happens you're out of your removal spell so you know maybe just this and this is another consideration i have for the cube which is maybe going beyond Kamigawa and Kamigawa themed cards one day and I think a good candidate would maybe be just adding in a couple of murders or heroes downfall or something like that in place of maybe a couple something of, very generic where yeah. it doesn't like clash with the Kamigawa theme or flavor but does sort of answer that answer that question I wonder how how stupid is this idea what if you just went through the cube list 
and like categorized every card that you considered to be like a power outlier bomb that demanded an answer, like a big Bane Slayer or whatever, and then just made sure you had exactly that same number or very similar to that same number of hard removal spells. I'm skepti- skeptical about this is just a thing to throw out there. What's the flaw in that thinking? I, don't I mean, obviously know. different I decks mean... are going to end up with different densities of it, mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm. so if you if you do that exercise, and let's say the bombs are evenly spread out between all the colors, but then you put all of your hard removal in black, then yes, sure, that's not going to work because now the black deck's going to have a ton of removal, every other deck's going to have very little, and that's going to be sort of a balancing problem. But overall, I think it's just the kind of thing that cube design really lends itself to because your players have agency. They get to draft things at whatever amount they, they value them, and if you get to the end of the draft and they say, hey, I don't have removal for these bombs, you could objectively say, hey, there is as many bombs as there are removal. Like, so if you didn't draft it, you didn't draft it. I don't know. I, I think it could be something too, like that is at least a starting point of if you want to make sure there's answers for those bombs, like check the numbers. Sure. And it this all could be moot if you do anything like pack collation, because it was just occurring to me that yeah. a lot of people will, or at least the few that I found online as I was <laughs> doing some research for this project, you know, some people will sort out all the commons all the uncommons and all the rares after each draft and then before each draft they'll actually construct those packs using the proper number of commons uncommons and and rares which if you're doing that i mean bless yeah. you that's uh, so much work i mean it's, it's a great if you're trying to mimic that limited retail experience and your play group is lucky to have you but miss me with that I will, <laughs> I will never be collating packs like that for any of my cubes <laughs> so you know it was occurring to me that well if most of your removal is at common and, un- and uncommon you're just going to naturally get a higher density if yep. you're doing that and then having, you know, kind of one bomb. I am not doing that. I should have maybe said that <laughs> at the outset. But uh, part of the reason why I wanted to just increase the the density of mana fixing and then why I'm considering this removal question is I don't w- want to <laughs> spend the energy to collect packs. Like Andy said, I think that that's great. I just like being able to shuffle the whole pile together and, and deal it out. So that, that could be one way to get around this is if you do just keep the ratio similar and then your removal is at a lower rarity. Sure. One other thought. I think the quality does really matter there too. Like, again, take that hypothetical starting point I gave. Let's say you go through the list and you're like, I have 40 bombs, 40 cards that are like a notch or two better than the average card in the cube. Then saying you have 40 removal spells, that's all well and good. If those are six mana removal spells, they're like D-level spells on rate, then they're not going to see play. And guess what is going to see play almost every draft? All of the bombs. People are going to take them highly. It's going to pull them into colors. Those cards are much more likely to make decks. So that's that's also a quality question, right? Maybe maybe it's making sure you have 40 quality removal spells that you think are very likely to make decks most of the time because that means that you're going to have in the actual resulting main decks of your players, again, roughly number, roughly an equal number of answers and big threats. Sort of a counterpoint to that, though, something that I do really enjoy about this environment is that a lot of the removal is somewhat conditional or fits into part of the synergy. So you mentioned Twisted Embrace. You have these black-white decks that care about having enchantments, so that feels very cool. Uh, also in black, you have things like the Life of Tushiro Mazawa, which just shrinks creatures. I really enjoy that kind of gameplay where it's like, well, do I attack first and maybe sacrifice a, a creature, potentially, depending on how my opponent blocks, in order to turn this card into a removal spell in the deck that i drafted i had volt charge which uh scales up to deal four damage if you can sacrifice an artifact which just fit really cleanly into my deck but you know forced me to make decisions about when i was using it and if it would scale differently in in the game so i really do like that kind of like more synergistic conditional situational removal for that so maybe that's a a something to consider if you did want to just sort of like power it up you are potentially also taking away some of those those kind of gameplay moments i don't think those are necessarily mutually exclusive right like I don't think you should look at your list and say, well, I've got the life of Tashiro Umazawa. That answers a bomb. Because I think objectively, most of the time, it doesn't, right? Your opponent has a 5-5 flyer. Yeah. It doesn't really do anything to have the life of Tashiro Umazawa. But 
that doesn't mean that you can have you can't have your 30 or 40 hard answers to your 55 flyers and also then however many additional synergistic removal pieces you could want to include for sure yeah or another example is you know the ninjas that uh, get to destroy creatures and they deal combat damage i mean that's kind of like the extreme of really synergistic kind of removal that, that i think is closer to actual hard removal for me though at least true definitely closer to hard removal but it, it asks you to build your deck in a certain way to it make does. it work yeah that's true and then i think the last big thing to note about this environment is like i said it was a really fun nostalgia trip for me to look back at some of the original kamigawa cards because that was the first set that i collected a lot of when i first started playing magic so my cousin and i shout out thomas if you're listening yo what up thomas <laughs> thanks for tuning in we just played a ton of kitchen table decks and kamigawa and the original ravnica were the first two sets that i kind of collected a lot of and so it was really fun to go and look back at those cards Sadly, I think a lot of them are going to be on the cutting room, on the chopping block. <laughs> I felt so bad about it too because like I, I drafted this cool blue white ninja deck. I called it blue white robot ninjas because I also had some things that cared about artifacts and artifact creatures. And I had four Kamigawa Bushido cards, and the Bushido mechanic plays really interestingly with ninjas, right? Because you don't want to block the Bushido creatures because generally when they get blocked, they are way under rate, right? Because the power and toughness plus the Bushido value is like a a powerful creature for the mana for the mana cost so generally they're worse cards if you just let your opponent hit you with them but of course that opens them up to being ninjutsued but i looked at my like list and tried to make cuts and i was like well actually you know what should be cut all of these moth rider whatevers and this like devout whatever dude like these little guys that just have bushido are actually nowhere near network disruptor like network disruptor is just such a better card for that same role i didn't do a lot of digital testing i just ordered the cards most of them were pretty cheap and i just proxied all the expensive ones and then just uh, brought it to a cube night and so i snuck in some cards like i'm looking at uh, inner chamber guard right here which is a one in a white for a zero two human samurai with bushido two and not I, great and <laughs> <laughs> i was curious if if our i feel like we have a lot of you know really experienced players in our play group a lot of really good players and so i was wondering I, I snuck some of those cards in just to see if anyone could or would make anything of them and the answer for the most part was no so i think you know for example if i'm looking for candidates to you know again if i want to cut a card and add in a murder i think those kinds of cards are going to be the the first candidates i'm interested actually to hear about what your methodology is going to be to making cuts because there's a lot of ways to go about it i think the average cube designer's intuition or someone maybe it's new to cube design will just want to cut the quote-unquote bad cards like the cards that no one played in their main deck it's like we'll get those out of here replace them with stuff people will play in their main deck yeah which from that angle makes perfect sense it's like these cards already were not being played they're not meaningful so let's yeah replace with something that potentially is going to be but at the same time what you're going to do then is let's say you replace it with cards that are meaningful now you just have a new set of cards that are in the right. sideboard and it's like do you cut those the other thing you can do, of course, is like cut from the top, or you could cut. How how are you thinking you're going to imagine you're going to manage your actual cuts? Yeah, good question. So I think I am, especially we've only done a couple drafts. There are a handful of cards that immediately present themselves as good candidates to be cut. Kappa Cannoneer was a good example after our first draft. That's cut which from the top. <laughs> is yeah, that that was a cut from the top. That was just a ridiculous card um, that even the the player playing it in his pool was like yeah i didn't really feel great about winning with this <laughs> um, that's one of the best signs i think you can get from your players when they're like i won with this card and i think you should cut it it's like okay well that's, that's people that signal. lose are always going to say that people that lose love to say you should cut the cards they lost to but the inverse only really happens when it's kind of a big outlier and then on the other end of the spectrum we have the inner chamber guards of the cube which no one comments on but i've just seen don't make it into anyone's pool if they have those types of cards so right now you know i am in the 
I guess, somewhat fortunate stage of having some low-hanging fruit like that that I can swap in and out. And my kind of, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it a conservative approach to making cuts, is just to add in some more copies of cards that aren't super powerful, but that I know players will draft. So, for example, you know, if I want to add in another white two-mana creature, I would just probably add in another Spirited Companion mm. and just go up to four. Mwah. Um, you know, it's an There's enchantment, draws a card. Exactly. So I have a, a stack of, you know, when I was loosely following the rarity ratios when building this, I had a stack of commons and uncommons that didn't quite make it in. So I already actually have some changes lined up where I'm just going to make similar swaps following the color and mana curve. Beyond that, I think one thing that I want to do is turn an eye towards balancing the archetype so going back to what i said at the beginning about how the red white samurai theme in the retail limited set didn't really come together and i listened to a great podcast that parker of lucky paper radio referred me to a podcast by sam black um it's called drafting archetypes i Mm -hmm. believe and his advice was basically make it a red white control deck so you draft a bunch of of burn spells and then a bunch of imperial oaths which is the card that makes three samurai tokens and that sounded cool so i kind of big boros baby so i kept in a few of the of the attacking alone matters samurai cards and uh as anthony saw some of them came in handy in other contexts when there when you have cards that care about attacking but i didn't want to make that the central archetype so another for example i think the based on the commander cards the kind of vehicles archetype if you can get it to come together is really potent um whereas the ninjas archetype is a lot of the signpost cards came from the the regular neon dynasty draft set and so in comparison aren't quite as potent and so i think going forward i'm going to be looking at the different archetypes and just trying to make sure that when a player drafts you know goes all in on that archetype they at least have a playable deck even if they're maybe you know they're switching halfway through the draft because their original color wasn't open or something like that. Yeah. I think fundamentally the question you should ask about those cards you might cut from the bottom is, are those the cards you want to be good, right? And it might be that you attempted to design a cube where you really wanted Chamber Guard or whatever you said, the the card that basically has Defender, it's a Bushido card with zero power. If that's the card you really wanted to play with, that's the card you wanted to make good, I don't think it would be a good strategy to, after a couple drafts, be like, well, no one's playing this, I guess I have to cut it that's where you should really be looking to cut from the top to then make those cards that you care about playable. But in this case, I mean, the cube is really fun. I, I got to say, like, I'm really impressed with the cube. It was really fun to play and draft. I think it, the decks that came together were really cool. So I, I would say the first couple of drafts were like a roaring success. And so in that context, I do think it makes sense to say, okay, well, we like this. This is good. So what's not contributing to the experience? And that's whatever people aren't drafting and playing. And then how can you use those slots more profitably to maybe patch some holes or like tweak some things where you need to sure yeah i wonder if you could use that sort of same thought process of like cutting from the top or bottom not just to individual cards but to themes as a whole i think that it it's totally it makes a lot of sense to say this theme wasn't really fun wasn't really powerful so let's just cut it i think you could also say like this didn't really work in the limited environment but let's throw in a couple things that care about attacking alone or just attacking or make attacking easier and just kind of power that uh theme up a little bit could also be a way to approach that yeah, the I think one of the great virtues of working on a cube that is not power maxed and also working on a cube where you break singleton is like, if you want to make the jitsu better, just put in a couple more Ninja of the Deep Hours and a couple more Changeling Outcasts. You might even have not even have Changeling Outcasts right now, but that card is messed up in the Ninja archetype. It's pretty easy to say these are like bread and butter commons that just like power up this archetype, which is nice for you to have that control as a designer to just say, yeah, let's power this up by putting in more of the good cards. Yeah, I also think 
with my kind of my other cube, which like I said, is trending a little higher power. That's just my cube where I get a cool card, you know, at a pre-release or something and just throw it in and kind of see what happens. Yeah, that's what's up. With this cube, I think I'm going to be a little, like I said, a little more conservative just because, you know, it's, you guys have talked on the show before about, you know, small sample sizes with drafting, players' predilections. There's a whole host of reasons why you can't get, um, you know, statistically relevant data on on cards that you should should cut or add depending on what your goals are. So what I'm probably going to do is just, you know, keep a, a list of cards in the back of my mind, like Changeling Outcast that I want to try, and then maybe introduce only a couple of them between drafts and just see how that goes. And then, so I, I think the growth of, and evolution of this cube will be a little bit slower, but, you know, hopefully just as successful. I, a couple of my considerations with this cube, which are probably going to be specific to your playgroup, but just as a, you know, just food for thought out there, especially if you're someone who's thinking is this a good way for me to get into cube is one thing that I considered is if your play group is really experienced and really enfranchised like I so I got kind of back into magic in 2020 after a really long break and I had done maybe a couple of drafts before showing up last year to start playing with you guys and so when I was thinking about well what can I bring to this really you know I want to make a cube but what can I bring to this really enfranchised playgroup who is used to playing with really fun powerful balanced environments I think a set cube of a set that everyone likes is a really great way to bring something new to the group that everyone's excited about so I think those are some some of the the pros if you're thinking about this as an entry point into cube one other thing I do want to talk a little bit more about we talked about the commander cards so specifically talking about the the cards from the commander sets that were associated with uh, the the main set which if you're doing a recent set all sets now have their corresponding much, commander yeah. products so if you're building a recent set cube which is more more likely than an old set cube if you're listening to this you probably drafted a set recently you liked then you do have a bigger card pool available to you yeah and I think those those actually played particularly interestingly in this environment because there's definitely a trend that a lot of the cards that are designed for commander are just super super powerful when you put them in a 1v1 environment but I think there's been another trend in the design of cards for uh, commander over maybe the last two or three years which is that a lot of them are getting more and more sort of narrow or specific in a way that I think is actually positive um so I was looking at, for example, some of these cards uh, during the draft. I opened up a Chishiro, the Shattered Blade, uh, and it basically is a 4-mana four 4-4, four, four, so I'm just like, yep, it's a commander card. It's going to have great stats for 1v1, basically always these days. But also, when it's you realize a- Magus of the Moon is a 3-mana 3-3. Three, exactly. Three. It's like, wow, okay, very cool. But it says whenever you cast an aura, or sorry, whenever an aura and equipment enters the battlefield under your control, you make a 2-2 spirit token, uh, and it has additional abilities as well, but it really is a high build around like you need to put a bunch of RN equipment to really get paid off for it so that's something that really stood out to me with a lot of those new commander cards is that they are less just total powerhouses and more things that kind of push your draft in a different way and I liked that in this context they weren't all entirely just you know this is the the icon for this two color pair it was like this is a little bit adjacent to it but still you're going to want to try and build your deck around it a little bit differently uh, which I think just adds some really nice texture to the way that you're drafting your decks. It's also, I think, for people that really like drafting a specific limited set, it's very exciting to open what is essentially that limited set, but now you have Shorakai. It's like, it's very cool to enhance it in that way if your playgroup is familiar with the base material, having entirely on flavor, new exciting cards you can put in there is a really great way to inject some variety and fun, I think. Totally. I will say, commander cards do tend to be significantly more complicated, and I think you should be conscious of that. A lot of these cards have a lot of text, and... 
maybe they don't even have that much text, but the way the text works is kind of a little bit obtuse and can be confusing. So something to keep in mind, maybe, but uh, you'll know. I'm looking at the specific cards you're interested in, whether or not the complexity is a, is a problem or not. I think something else that really makes them work here, though, is the fact that we are in a context where a lot of the cards don't have the complexity. There are a lot of cards in this set that just have a keyword or, you know, one or two effects, one or two lines of rules text. And I think you sort of get to put your complexity points uh, wherever you want. And the fact that you're going to see two or three of these like really complex, powerful cards in the draft rather than every single one being from that kind of kind of space. You can ask your players to read one or two cards in the pack, uh, asking them to read the seven they've never seen before. Uh, They're probably just going to take the lightning bolt or whatever. And I think that actually is going to make players more likely to see to actually read them in the first place. them In your deck, I feel like very often players fall into this sort of familiarity bias and they just end up picking the cards they know and are familiar with and putting them in their deck. But when I have seen, you know, okay, here's another duplicate of this removal spell I'm familiar with. I can process this pack pretty quickly. Let me take the time to read this card and maybe I'll actually, you know, decide to build around it. Another thought that you sparked, Anthony, with that was when I was working on this cube, I wasn't just paying attention to the mana fixing, but also the mana curve of the environment. And I think when I was looking at the general mana curve of Neon Dynasty, and I imagine this is true of most retail limited sets the curve is pretty high there aren't a lot of as many one mana creatures for example in in most colors and so it seems to me that i've had some success with our play group by just cutting completely cards that maybe seem sweet but they cost five or six mana and just adding in multiple copies of the lower mana spells and i think that you know people have fun casting their spells no one likes to draw a hand that's a bunch of four or five mana cards and um, so I think that's another... Some people do like it. They're sickos, <laughs> but they're out there. Casting f- expensive spells? Well, specifically drawing a hand with all expensive spells. Danny I mean, will often turn to me in a draft and be like, look at my perfect hand. And it's <laughs> three lands, two four drops, a five drop, and some like... Look at this curve. It starts at four, but wow, <laughs> is it consistent past that? And I, of course, will like, you know, roll my eyes and be like, oh, Daniel, and then look over and he's winning two turns mm-hmm. later. It's like, yep. okay, well, amazing. off he goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that strategy makes a lot of sense. You know, people do like to cast their spells, and I think it really makes a lot of sense when you combine it with upping the fixing, just like increasing the tempo of the format a little bit, increasing the fixing density and reducing the overall cost, all of that just hangs really well for me. So if you're looking for some resources to build a set cube, some that I found particularly helpful were, first of all, a great Channel Fireball article by Jason Waddell. It's called Cube Design Set Cubes. I felt like that article really had everything that you would need if you were just going to sit down. You you were familiar with draft and maybe familiar with cube, but you didn't know anything past that. I think that article is just a great one-stop shop. Jason, friend of the show, shout out to Jason. Beyond that, I actually did a lot of research into the retail limited environment of the set. So in my case, Neon Dynasty. So I was using retail draft review sites like DraftSim and MTGA Zone, just reading articles about what the players who were drafting that limited set thought was working well. Uh, I also wanted to shout out a couple of uh, lucky paper radio episodes so the hosts you know the hosts aren't great but they put out good content <laughs> wow this, uh, this is when you choose to tell us <laughs> um, but no the the bread and butter episode uh the texture of removal and then um the three neon dynasty episodes that you guys did were were pretty helpful as well I would also just say, for general cube resources, I also would recommend the logistics episode, which I went back and looked as number 60, and then your resource guide episode, which is number 105, uh, as a good place for cubers to start who are just looking for general content advice. 
Uh, and then finally the cube map i thought it was really cool i went on to um and you know with because of the content of the cubes set cubes have their own little clusters so there's like an right. innistrad cluster and neon dynasty and kamigawa cluster uh, and so that was really helpful to just click around and see what other themed cubes had in them what their philosophies were and so on yeah, I think the cube map actually does a really great job of sort of separating out these different types and approaches to set cubes. Very often you'll see, you know, here's the Innistrad section and there's, you know, very clearly different sections for set cubes, like the most rigorous, uh, what, what do you call it, the most just trying to recreate, faithful. most faithful recreations of those limited environment type cubes. Uh, and then you'll see in separate sort of like, really you'll just sort of see that spectrum in some cases of the things that are a little bit more flexible, the things that are a little bit more curated, the cubes that start to integrate more cards that are from the plane, uh, and then things that are just, you know, loosely inspired, but much more curated to whatever the, the designer's taste is. I'll add a couple things to that resource list too. If you are working on a set cube, you can always refer to 17 lands if the set is on arena for the performance of individual cards in that set in retail draft. That's the most rigorous data set you're going to get there in terms of what is and is not working in the draft set. I particularly recommend maybe looking at the signpost gold uncommons for each of the color pairs and see how those perform. That gives you a very good, I think, barometer for how good that particular archetype or color pair is in that particular set. One other tool which I've used occasionally is uh, there's an asfan calculator online. It's on uh, yeefbear.com, yeefbear.com slash as hyphen fan. And uh, this will allow you to either select a set that exists and show you the asfan for a bunch of different mechanics in that set. So, for example, it's got a page for Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, and you can see the asfan for Ninjutsu channel reconfigure, artifacts, artifacts matter, blah, 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 all the way down, uh, including, like, you know, the faux exalted and stuff. Um, that's also a good way to then compare those numbers to the Aspen in your own cube because that same page has a like calculator where you can just enter custom values for stuff in your own environment. So if you are trying to make sure that your support for ninjutsu is identical to or slightly more than what you experienced in Retail Limited, um, that's the best way to do it. It's hard to calculate that stuff otherwise because the packs are collated, right? So if you go on Scryfall, you look for all the cards with Ninjutsu in a, in a given set, you then have to multiply by this factor of how many commons and uncommons there are. Um, for stuff like mana fixing, it can be weird because sometimes packs are collated differently with mana fixing. So uh, I like that site a lot for just getting a, like, turning the experience you had drafting it into some objective number-based thing you can look at as a reference point. So you then have something to compare to. Yeah, I know, for example, with the retail neon dynasty drafts you were guaranteed i believe you were guaranteed a saga enchantment exactly in every yeah. pack and again that's not something uh, a rule i'm following here but i did go through and just kind of get a sense of okay how many sagas and just enchantments in general that trigger those enchantments matter themes do i have and i felt like i had a high enough density and for the enchantment deck seems to be working so far. Yeah, even when you're not collating packs, it's the kind of thing where you can say, okay, well, everyone was guaranteed one. The actual Aspen was probably a little bit higher than one because there were also ones that are the rarities. You get a foil one. I'm not sure how it all worked. Maybe it was, was it exactly one? I don't remember. I think it was exactly one. I think the there's the no way, way to get is... any other sagas at any other slots in the pack. It was always just one in the saga in the saga pack or a saga slot. That I believe that's sure. correct. I think they try and keep the the rarities still pretty consistent. So if you have comments, they'll have common sagas still appear at the common rate uh, more or less so i don't know if it really has a huge impact i think a bigger question when they're actually just building booster packs is they want to make sure that if somebody's opening one booster pack they see a saga for sure so they get that theme of the set you know so right. like legends and dominaria which is another thing just to be aware of 
you know, think about why people, why Wizards is building sets and packs in certain ways, because some of those things just aren't going to apply to you, because you're not building uh, packs that a random person is going to open one booster pack of. You're trying to design, you know, the best draft experience. So right. a lot of those things you can you can definitely afford to give up on. My point is, though, even if you're not doing pack correlation, if you did want to, say, for example, mirror the density of sagas in your cube that you experience in Retail Limited, you could make the average as-fan the same. And it's not going right. to, of course, break down exactly evenly. Some people are going to have two, some people are going to have zero sometimes. But still, you know, get the same number of sagas roughly going around the table in each draft, which will make it pretty similar to Retail Limited. So a good look there. <laughs> I want to just like summarize our then tips for people that want to make their own set cube. The first one for me is just don't overthink it. Like I really do think that just doing a draft that you thought was fun, putting all those cards in the same sleeves and sleeving up some basic lands, like that is a perfectly valid cube. You will have fun drafting that again. I promise you it will still be fun. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. I mean, I will play my role here and say, you can use spreadsheets. Uh, spreadsheets are great. You can, you know, go on Scryfall, do a search for, specifically, you can search for the set and add the is booster tag to get exactly what you'll actually open in a pack. Uh, and then, you know, break that down by each color or each rarity and see how many cards there are, plug those into a spreadsheet, and you can figure out all the numbers if you want. Uh, I think if you love spreadsheets, you will enjoy that. But uh, I, yeah, I, I don't think we have to tell people that they can get more complicated and overwrought with it if they want to. Oh, people I, are definitely keen people- to do I think people should know that spreadsheets are an option. (laughs) If you're starting with the spectrum of do you want to precisely replicate the retail draft versus just capture the essence, I think, you know, like Andy said, just putting the sleeving the booster box that you drafted up and drafting again, it's going to be a great time. If you do decide to go further, when you're thinking about, you know, rarity ratios, pack collation, mana fixing, kind of smoothing those peaks and valleys of power level, there are so many different directions that you can take it. But I think this is a really great way to just get your first cube like i said at the beginning this is the way that i wish i had gotten into cube and now that i have one it's been a really fun and flavorful design experience yeah i think the way maybe to summarize that is just like if you do get to the point where you're making cuts and you're like crafting the environment instead of just either faithfully representing a total limited environment or just leaving a box follow the fun with all your cuts don't worry about cutting from the bottom cutting from the top or any of these balances or graphs like if a card is fun leave it if a card is not fun cut it and put it in a card that you think will be fun that's a really good way to just make sure the cube stays exciting and uh, and fun to draft i do think the next level is thinking about all the considerations that wizards has that you two both alluded to when they make a booster pack and how many of those considerations are not valid when you're just building a limited set to be drafted right i mean they're trying to print specific densities of cards for certain constructed formats to make sure they get into circulation they're trying to make sure they have uh, the right number of build arounds for people that love doing certain build around things they're trying to make sure that someone that opens a pack doesn't see four lands because that's not fun for people that don't that are new to magic, that don't think lands are fun. They don't want to see four lands in their pack. They're going to feel like they got ripped off. I mean, they're trying to include strategic reprints to both make the set exciting and valuable and also just, you know, uh, do call-outs that players are going to enjoy, which in a different way might be a factor you'd consider, but not necessarily to the same, same point. So I think thinking about that broadly is the best way to mentally approach the like improvement of your cube over time and what that really will come down to most of the time i think is like you said aaron you're gonna want more fixing than you have in retail limited i wrote an article about the density of fixing in cubes and all the considerations that go into it and tldr i think you should have a lot more fixing than you have in retail limited and i think it's entirely possible to have a really fixing dense environment that still encourages just two or one color decks uh, and doesn't like devolve into three four and five color decks very often so i would say more fixing 
lower curve. Uh, I think curve is the thing where we see a lot of times cards getting printed, like four commander, for example, where cards curve a lot higher. People want to see exciting big cards, like people that are not that enfranchised that just open a pack because they think magic is cool. They want a big creature in there. Big creatures are cool. That might not be what you want in your cube draft environment. So, but it I, also might be big creatures are actually cool. It's true, but so I, I think very often it'll be more fixing, lowering the curve, and just focusing on the stuff you think is fun. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've alluded to it a couple times, but I would also just recommend uh, Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work podcast, where he talks about the design of magic. I think it obviously applies to all of the episodes that we do, talking about cube design and you know it being a, a facet of or sort of a microcosm, a small piece of game design. But I think it really does apply here because he's talking about the way that often they are, you know, the things that they're considering when they put cards into a booster pack, the things that they think about when they're designing a limited set so it really does give you a lot of insight into how you could sort of extend that process and customize it for yourself one last idea that i had was that if you get tired of replicating that retail draft experience you it's very easy and fun to up the power level swap out some of the lower powered cards and make it resemble a a more traditional higher powered cube my sense is that's a lot harder to go the other way and depower a powerful environment, especially one that maybe your playgroup has drafted. So I think if you come to your playgroup with a set cube and it's a new thing, it's fun. I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear that you guys had fun with the first couple drafts. I had a lot of fun as well. And then, you know, in the future, if I add in some non-Kamigawa cards that, you know, are still powerful and fun, you know, hopefully that's still going to be a fun experience for everyone. But that still allows for that evolution if you want to take it even further in a different direction. Let's end on a pack one pick one from your Kamigawa Remastered Cube. I don't often do this, Anthony, but I I overruled your pack that you generated at random. I think it was boring, and we're just taking Fable Passage out of it. It didn't have any cool cards from the Commander set, didn't have any cool cards from original Kamigawa. So I've generated a new one here. Yeah, you're correct. We would have just taken Fable Passage. Here, Fable Passage is still an option, but I think there's a lot of other things that could potentially compete with it. So... I'll read out this pack. If you want to follow along, we have a cards mentioned page for every single episode that shows you visually all the cards we talked about in chronological order. So towards the bottom of that page, you'll find this pack one pick one because we're at the end of the episode. The pack is Reality Heist, Kami of Celebration, Teachings of the Kirin, Malicious Malfunction, Norika Yamakazi the Poet, Behold the Unspeakable, Nizumi Prowler, Needle Verge Pathway, Iron Apprentice, The Restoration of a Ganjo, Reinforced Ronin, Fabled Passage, Ninja of the Deep Hours, Assassin's Inc., and Ryu Storm's Edge. I think this is a very interesting pack, and as always, I'm going to make you give your response first, Anthony. Wow, we'll great, end great, on Aaron. Great job making a better pack than I could by hitting the <laughs> random button one time. <laughs> Why are you taking it personally? It's your fault for taking it personally. It's a random pack. What are you taking, Anthony? I have to read some of the cards. Oh, okay. (laughs) I agree that this is a much more interesting pack. Uh, Obviously, we do still have a Fabled Passage. We talk about fixing and how great it is to take this early. You know, Fabled Passage is 100% going to make my deck, uh, which makes it really appealing. But we do have a couple cards that are kind of power outliers here. Ryu Storm's Edge is exactly that kind of commander card. It's a creature that wants you to attack with samurais and warriors alone and then really pays you off in a powerful way so but also it's just a four mana three three first strike which but is not also awful. just pretty good so like that's the kind of thing that i do kind of want to take early in order to build around in the same way kami of celebration just offers that kind of like very cool build around it asks you to attack with modified creatures but then it, if you uh, are actually then able to do the thing it re- does for you 
modifies more of your creatures. So I think it is powerful. It is fun to play with. Card is good. Card is very Card strong. Card is good. I'm I'm also a little bit biased, obviously, just because I played Kami of Celebration in the draft. That you know, it's it's important to be aware of your biases there. There's also what is this called? Behold the Unspeakable. I'm looking at this these cards from a little bit of a distance, so can't read them verbatim. I am I am tempted to take Kami of Celebration here because it is a monocolored card. It has a really high ceiling, and if you can build around it, it's going to just generate a ton of value. But I'm also really tempted to take Fabled Passage. I think I went a little bit too long there. What are you taking? There are three cards here that I think are power outlier status in this cube, and those cards are Kami of Celebration, the Restoration of Aganjo, and I'm throwing Ninja of Deep Hours in there, even over something like Ryu Storm's Edge, which Ryu's good. I don't think it's good enough to pull me into a gold card, a gold four drop, specifically pack one. Oh, yeah, Restoration's really good. I kind of skimmed over that. So the question is, do I want to take one of these, I think, power outlier cards, or do I want to play it safe and start with a Fabled Passage? And my mood right now, I'm taking Restoration of Aganjo. Uh, this card is basically a... Uh, saga that flips into a brimaz eventually so uh mm -hmm. it's got a really really good value in terms of what you get out of your three mana investment takes a little time to get that investment paid off but i think in all but the fastest most aggressive matchups it's going to be a huge bomb and it is a monocolored card just white so i'm pretty open to taking whatever comes my way in the next pack those are the only cards i would consider taking over fatal passage at all in this pack though i think aaron what are you going to take yeah so i had my eye also on fabled passage also on restoration of a ganjo also on Kami of Celebration, but then one that you guys didn't mention was actually Assassin's Ink. So this is a it, it is double black to cast, but it does get cheaper if you have artifacts and then cheaper again if you have enchantments. Um, and it's just destroy target creature, planeswalker. Like we mentioned earlier, the the density and quality of removal is something I'm thinking about, and there aren't a ton of hard removal spells in here, so it just That's caught my true. eye as uh, potentially a solid pick, even though you know, you probably don't want to start off on a, a double pip casting cost for your first pack. I probably would be boring and take the Fabled Passage, but ruling the Fabled Passage out, I would probably be on Kami of Celebration as well. A nice range of options there for that pack. I think you're right that maybe a hard removal spell should have jumped out more at us in this pack, because like you said, it's not super abundant here, and there are bombs. Your opponent is going to have their Kami of Celebration or whatever, and you need to be able to answer it. I do think there's an interesting question of, do you take the bomb or the thing that answers the bomb? And for me early, I'm always going to take the proactive threat because that card is always going to be good when I draw it pretty much as opposed to the answer only being good when my opponent specifically has a bomb for me to remove. But I will definitely prioritize hard removal pretty highly in this environment, I think, after I know what lane I'm in. Yeah, I don't think I would take Assassin's Inc. here first, but I did just want to call it out as one that deserves consideration, I think. Well, Aaron, this is a very cool cube, and thank you for coming on and talking about it. Uh, also, like, you are somebody that just started playing cube, like, what, this past, like, a year ago, basically, pretty much, more or less? Uh, yeah, I think my first draft with you guys was around May, May of last year, so less than May a year. Like, nine yeah. months, basically, ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that time, you've become a, a true bona fide cube head. You're talking about maybe attending CubeCon next year, which we hope we can, uh, we can drag you to. It's always a delight to play with you, and I'm really excited to continue playing this cube for many years to come. Yeah, thank you guys again so much for having me on. I have to say it's a little bit surreal because a, I got into Cube through a friend of mine. Uh, shout out to Bryce down in Richmond. Who's Yo, actually, what's up, Bryce? Thanks for listening. And he's actually come up to a draft up here where we did a Cube night. But anyway, he, he kind of introduced me to the idea of Cube. And then I found the podcast even before I had moved to Baltimore and was listening to it. And then 
you know, heard a reference to you guys being in Baltimore, emailed you, and and here we are. So it's you can a put me on blast and tell people how long it took me to respond to your email. <laughs> that, way, that way, people don't feel bad. But I'm slow to respond to their emails too. A because... measly 92 days, <laughs> 12 <laughs> hours, 36 minutes. Um, no, I'm but sorry, I'm awful. It's been a really great time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun coming on and talking about the cube with you guys. And exactly what you said, Andy. Here's to many more years of, of cube drafts ahead. Go forth, listeners. Make your own set cubes and get as invested in this beautiful format as Aaron is. Yeah, I really hope, um, you know, if there's anyone out there listening to this who's, like I said at the beginning, debated getting into cube, but they weren't quite sure how, or maybe it was a little intimidating, or they just needed, you know, that germ of an idea as a, as a jumping off point. I hope this has, you know, provided some help and some inspiration. Yeah, I feel like we've done a couple episodes recently where we kind of implicitly gave the listeners homework, uh, most recently talking about starting a local cube group. People and- took that challenge to heart have really taken that challenge and it's been so awesome to hear from you know people commented on the reddit or uh, sent in emails allegedly maybe they just uh, got lost in the inbox (laughs) i'm trying to get better about it okay Um, about how they've been starting you know talking to their local game store owner talking to you know finding one or two other people in their local area that they might want to you know be the the seed to growing a cube group and that's so rewarding and satisfying to hear and the best uh, i look forward to hearing hopefully a bunch of people say that they have not been you know it's been a little bit too intimidating to get into cube but they just sleeved up a box and they're they're starting that way but then aaron told him it was okay just take one draft's worth of cards sleeve them up and you can have a cube we got one amazing email anecdote which i i hope this turns out to be true where somebody said they listened to the episode about getting the local playgroup more into cube and trying to grow the group and they were like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna go down to my local game store and like try to make it happen and they like apparently play there pretty often and when they arrived that night they saw some new people they'd never seen before that were there to do the exact same thing also to try and get a cube playgroup going and they didn't ask them if they also listened to the episode of the show, but I like to think they did. And these two people were separately sitting alone in their homes in some other city, and they were like, I sure wish I could play cube with somebody. And then they both came out on the same night, and a new connection was made. I like to think beautiful that's happened i think we should promote this happening even more i think maybe maybe next year i don't know how ambitious we want to get but we should secret set, handshake we should create uh, that's also an interesting <laughs> idea i was just gonna say pick a date and be like this is the go to your lgs and play cube night and just like meet new people cube day cube day let's make cube day happen every cubes day <laughs> i think an annual cube day is a great idea all right we don't have the pull to make that happen, but we know the people collectively that have the pull to make That's this happen. That's a really happen. good point. Okay, yeah, yeah we can. We don't. We need just got to gotta get like Jay Bro and John mm-hmm. and like everybody all invested in the same thing, and uh, we can get Gwen to put a banner on Cube Cobra that uh, you know leads up to it, tells you this is Cube Day. Go to your LGS and play Cube. Let us know your nominations for when do you think Cube Day? Yes, yeah, send, send in your date nominations for Cube <laughs> Day. Uh, I guess three three, but the problem is there's not a third three. I I want to be a little. I would say air on the side of practical to rather than flavorful but that's that's just me i mean being memorable is very practical i'm gonna go Great with point. november 18th no, okay i'm writing that down on the uh, i'm gonna open up a Wonder nominations why. list you just pick a random date it's pretty far away it, it's my birthday i just thought it'd be cool to have, uh, <laughs> day on my birthday. you're diluting your birthday Aaron. you fool you're supposed to make it all about you that's what i'm talking about a real martyr over here all right, that's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Go forth, make your set cubes. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony and I, doing no real work and making Aaron do it all for us. Thanks for making the podcast, Aaron. Oh, it was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks for having me.